Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Bryant McDowell, Molly Keck, Robert Puckett, and Janet Hurley. Well, welcome to 2023, everybody. Happy New Year, and thank you everyone for joining us as we I guess, continue this podcast for a whole other year. Our topic for this month is kind of in line with, I think, what most people are thinking about. We know what's going to be coming up in 2023 and what does this year look like and what can I do to make this year better? And so we're going to be giving our predictions for what insects will be big this year. And that is really kind of a loaded thing to talk about because we don't have a crystal ball and these are pure guesses. based on maybe not even science, just on what we think hasn't been big. And so it's got to be big this year. So take it with a grain of salt, if you will, and um, give us some grace and know that probably 99% of what we're going to say is that you're not even going to see this year. But these are our guesses, um, just kind of based on what we think is going on with weather and other things. And I guess I'll get us started off because I feel like this is not going to be a really strong winter for maybe for most of Texas, maybe up in the panhandle, they'll see more of a winter than we are. It is going to be a high of 72 degrees and sunny in San Antonio right now. Um, It's been highs in the 70s since after, right after Christmas. So I'm sure the temperatures will dip, but my prediction is that spring is going to come early. Flowers are going to bloom early. We've got to get some rain at some point. It's got to be on the way. And so what I'm thinking is going to happen is that bee populations are going to be booming early on. They're going to be busting out of their houses and people are going to start calling us asking, how do I get rid of these bees that are in the soffits of my house or have started to nest in a hole they managed to get through in the wheat poles of my brick um, or they're in my shed Or my favorite is when someone goes out to barbecue and they lift up the barbecue pit and the bees come flying out of that. So that's, that's my prediction, but the weather has got to hold up, I think for that to be more tried and true. And of course we'll see what happens there. And if that is you, we have done an episode on honeybees and homes. So you can look at our previous podcasts and you can download that and take a listen. Exactly. Do y'all agree with me that you think we're going to have an early spring? Is that how it looks in your area? So it feels to me. Yeah, certainly the way it feels right now. Yeah. Well, I think we'll get what we normally do. It's going to be warm. Then we'll have a cold snap sometimes in February. And then it will rapidly warm up again. And everyone will think, oh, we've had a freeze and there won't be. Yes, we will still have mosquitoes. Yes, we will still have flies. Yes, we will still have. Everything. So as soon as my fruit trees start to bloom, that's usually when it freezes. Of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I've noticed. I mean, I'm starting to notice things. And I remember in 2021, it was starting to warm up and some of my stuff was starting to bloom. And then all of a sudden we did have snowmageddon. But even with a snowstorm, 
it didn't slow down a lot of things. I mean, we still saw mosquitoes come back. I mean, especially depending on storm season and stuff, uh, the, the stinging caterpillars, they don't seem to hide anymore. I know I've already seen bagworms. Really? So you think caterpillars, is that your prediction, caterpillars? Yep. I'm predicting the, the, the caterpillars that we love to hate. That's a really long list. <laughs> <laughs> if you live around any type of tree, and then there's just the borers. Oh, yeah. I think you're right, Janet. I think that all the trees were stressed from not only the drought, but just scorched by the sun this year. It was so hot. And that is in the back of our, we've forgotten already how hot it was this summer. And we don't realize that those boring insects and a lot of that damage to the trees doesn't present. The symptoms don't actually show up until almost a year after the initial, you know, damage or stress happened. So I, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that trees are going to look, we're going to see some tree issues this, uh, this summer, I think. Well, and I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, if you think about so I don't know if, if you mentioned this, Janet, but we we did go through a pretty significant freeze a couple of weeks ago um, throughout much of the state. I mean, it was a very rare event to go a full 24 hour cycle freezing in College Station, Texas, but we did it. Um, so, I, you know, that's going to provide additional stress to trees. And then beyond that, I don't know if you guys, you guys remember after the freeze in 20, um, do you guys remember, did you get a lot of, of uh, folks reaching out about um, fungus gnats? I I think I did. I know where you're going with that. Yeah. And when you mentioned it, it made perfect sense to me. Yeah, I've got this hypothesis that, you know, these are developing in decaying organic matter. And after, after the freeze in 20, I noticed around a lot of buildings and homes, um, lots of, you know, dead grass up against the houses, up against the foundation. And I just, I wonder if that didn't drive a, a greater than normal population of, of those insects during that time of year in the near home environment. So then they slip right in and people are finding them in their houses and all this. So. Well, Robert, I mean, you just segued into what I was just thinking about, you know, we're talking about the trees, but now let's talk about that home. How much is your foundation settled and or your roof, your soffits, all of that while mm -hmm. we talked about that. But I mean, this is when it becomes critical. You know, do you have anything up against your home that could, over the next couple of months, lead to your next pest problem? Mm -hmm. What are you asking me? I don't. I don't have any of those things next to my house, Janet. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> but I was really thinking of the audience. Uh -huh. Another thing to consider. So I mean, we talked about uh, rainfall and, and temperature. And as we see more rainfall and those temperatures rising, um, our, our favorite annual <clears throat> influx of, of crane flies mm. uh, will be something to look out for. That's how I know that spring's on the way. Right. Exactly. <laughs> crane flies. And then I see fire ant mounds. I'm seeing those everywhere right now. Yeah, they're up now. Crazy. <laughs> but yeah, Bryant, tell us about crane flies. Oh my goodness. So what about, well, okay. I'll say everyone loves to mistake them. The other name, what do they call them? Um, mosquito hawks. Yes. Texas mosquitoes. Skeeter eaters. Skeeter eaters. 
Yeah, I get I get people who say, you know, oh, we have these huge, uh, you know, they always say everything's bigger in Texas. We have these huge mosquitoes. Um, so crane flies are there um, as larvae and in the soil. I believe that they're in really moist habitat. Um, you guys can correct me on that if I'm wrong. I'm I'm not 100 um, percent, but they they tend to emerge all at one time as adults. Um, they they don't spend time feeding or anything. Their their goal is to mate literally die for good toad food toad not tofu toad food they're toad they're food. good cat toys i know my cats love messing with the ones that come in mm-hmm. they're a pain to sweep and vacuum up for sure i'm trying to i don't even know where the larval habitat is i'm gonna look that up real quick it's in the soil, soil. yeah yeah mm-hmm. like kind that. of moist soil so the wetter the spring and coming out of winter, the more you usually um, see. And then I've also sat through, surprisingly, I I think up north there, they can be a major, some species can be a major issue in turf, like sports turfs. I've sat in some talks on that before. Oh, wow. But that's not here in Texas. Mm -mm. Here they are harmless. (laughs) They just scare the bejesus out of your children and irritate your dogs and cats. So is that where crane flies your prediction, Bryant? to be big this year? I'm, I feel like I always see crane flies. What I'm really hoping for is the, uh, the giant cricket, um, in influx, which I have oh, not seen. You're so hoping like, for it. That's yeah, only because he gonna... hasn't been an extension when that's oh, been going man. on. You haven't been threatened by people <laughs> that you're, they're going <laughs> to take you down because you made it happen. The, Please the don't protect the... that. Oh, come on. <laughs> the McDonald's <laughs> drive through window, getting crickets in your car. That's the best. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, what Bryant was talking about was crickets being wanting to see the crickets out. And I have always heard that the relation, the population relation of crickets depends on uh, temperature, but also on moisture. And I think grasshoppers as well. So not just crickets. And so if for some insects, moisture is really important for their insects not to desiccate and to survive. So more moisture generally means more of that species. But with orthopterans, more moisture can actually be detrimental because it means more fungus and other microbes that survive to kill the eggs. So more moisture generally means less of a population. So if it's if it continues to be dry, then I think you're right, Bryant, probably this fall. It's usually when it happens here, at least. Uh, coming out of summer and then into the fall school starting and that's when the crickets go bonkers and sometimes they're bonkers for a day and sometimes it's weeks and it's it's horrible my prediction is going to be in regards to not just mosquitoes but we haven't had like and this is a terrible thing it's like i'm not wanting this but we haven't had a year where we really had some crazy weird disease pop up, whether it's, you know, West Nile or Zika or chikungunya or whatever, but it's been a while. So I'm thinking that we may be due to have something like that kind of crop up, but again, it's going to be dependent upon mosquito populations and rainfall and moisture levels. Um, But it also, you know, we all know that there are also those mosquitoes that are container breeders that are around the house that can transmit or vector diseases. So we have to keep that in mind and try to make sure that we're reducing the water that is 
uh, around our house kind of standing there for periods of time, just so we can reduce the possibility of those organisms being in the environment and being capable of vectoring any diseases that might occur. Robert, yes. what it would, I want Robert to talk about the possibility of the white-footed ants spreading mm-hmm. into other parts of Texas, because I know that that's in the Corpus area right yeah. now. Yeah. What do you think, what would be your prediction? I mean, not necessarily that it's going to explode the population, but that's something that people mm-hmm. really need to be watching and being careful about transporting stuff, right? Right. In fact, my, in my notes before we got together today, I thought about talking about a couple of our invasive species that aren't going to be locally problematic for people in terms of their population densities, but um, are likely to become on the move um, this year. And you're you're right, white-footed ants are one of those. Um, This is a newly invasive ant species in Texas, although they've been in the United States for some time. Um, Their densities can reach really significant, significant proportions Um, And they're only known from one small area in Corpus Christi, Texas, um, at present. Now, we've done a lot of monitoring um, along transects with food lures um, radiating away from that location. We haven't found them anywhere except for the campus grounds of the Texas State Aquarium. But um, I think I think there's a likelihood that they can't can become on the move this year. we know that they, uh, we, we think there's a likelihood that they could have moved with refuse from that site um, to landfills. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's probably important for people to uh, be aware of these guys. Like I say, they're our newest invasive ant species and they are quite problematic where they occur in South Florida. And we don't want them to break containment here, but that's sort of up to us as a population to keep them from moving. So if you want more information about those feel free to reach out to me and I can send you some information about them. Um, and what do they look like and when, they, why are they a big deal? Yeah. So they're a darkly colored ant on their head, thorax, gas or abdomen or gaster and the top portion of their legs. The lower portion of their legs is um, uh, white. So they go from black to white along their legs. That's very conspicuous. Um, they're a small ant all the same size in a colony. And they do something really, really remarkable. Not a lot of ant species do this, but you know, ants are social insects and they have a caste system. Everybody kind of has their own job. Well, there are individuals in the white-footed ant colony that we refer to as intercasts. And in fact, in a, in a mature colony of white-footed ants, you would expect to find about half of the ants there to be intercasts. And what's unique about those is that they can lay eggs. And many of those eggs go to feed larvae in the colony, but the rest of them, become worker ants. So you can imagine it's like if you have a a colony with 100,000 ants, and that's on the low end, these typically become very large colonies. Um, Half of those are producing eggs and about half of those can become workers. So it's it's as as though you have about a quarter of the colony that's functioning as a queen. And so their their population density, local population densities can can rise very, very quickly. yeah, and so they don't have a sting. That that's the good news. They're sort of like our tawny crazy ants, um, but they're a significant pest and nuisance problem. And um, they're known to vector uh, disease, some plant diseases, in really? particular diseases of the citrus industry. So um, yeah, that's one to be on the lookout for. And another is the uh, emerald ash borer. Um, 
a borer, you know, Janet mentioned borers earlier um, in the podcast. This is an invasive species um, that has been found in several counties. It's sort of up in Northeast Texas. Um, but I think, you know, we added three new counties last year, as I recall. And I don't know that we added a county in 2021, but in 2020, we added two counties. And so the point is that I think they're about to start popping and really moving exponentially through different counties in Texas. And this is one that lots of folks are very concerned about, um, in particular our forestry service, because these, as the name indicates, um, their primary host plant are ash trees. And so the idea is that all ash trees in the state are presumably at peril from becoming um, infested with emerald ash borer. And the, and the rea reality is there's not really a good treatment for these. Um, so, so folks are very concerned about them. And the good news, I guess, on that is that they are only specific to ash, but we do have some native, we don't have as much, as many species of native ash as they do maybe in the eastern part of the United States, but we do have some native ash species. And a lot of people, it seemed like every developer in the 90s um, and, and late 80s planted um, Arizona ash in every single neighborhood. Um, but those are also dying naturally because they're 30 plus years old and they don't live all that long. Right. Um, but I guess the good news on that emerald ash borer to me is that it's not going to hurt your oaks and your elms and whatever else we like to have here. Yeah, that's right. So about those white-footed ants, um, Puckett, are, do they reproduce, like, are they parthenogenetic or is it a sexual reproduction? Do y'all know that or? It's, it's sexual. Nice. Yeah. It's so sexual. the, so then the ones that, what did you call them? The intercasts. Intercasts. So like mm -hmm. the fake queens, I guess. So how are they laying eggs? Are they mating with males to do that? Presumably in the colony, they're, they're mating with uh, uh, male reproductives. And um, one of the, one of the challenges is that if you, if you think about um, the way we normally bait for ants, and we've talked all through this um, in previous podcasts, um, you know, an ant, feeds on an amount of bait, whether it be a liquid bait or a granular bait. And then they share that um, food, what, what they presume is food through trophallaxis. Basically they regurgitate food for their nest mates. Um, and then the active ingredients from the insecticide make their way through the colony. The problem with white-footed ants is the portion of those eggs that I mentioned earlier that they're feeding to the larvae, the active ingredient of our insecticides don't make it into the eggs. Um, so they're, they're, they're feeding larvae in the colony um, eggs that have not been impacted by baits that the worker ant may have fed on in the field, um, which, which is doubly problematic. So, so our colleagues in, in Florida will tell you, you know, many of our contact insecticides are not very effective on these ants. And then the baiting strategies are very different. Whereas we, we bait here and, and workers move that active ingredient through the colony and then eventually to the queens, the idea is that we're just trying to kill as many workers as we can to eventually bring the numbers down, you know, so that they're livable, but also to the point where they can't, um, they, 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 they can't um, function in terms of their role as a colony going out and finding forage and bringing it back. So it's a, sort of a different ball game, but we're, we're all learning. I'm sure we're all going to have to learn a lot about these guys in the coming years. That's, 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 that's really crazy. That's insane. That's like yeah. No, no, it just reinforces what I've always said. All ants are finicky. Mm -hmm. They're finicky three-year-olds that aren't sure if they really want 
veggies <laughs> or french fries that day so but it's just <laughs> but it's hey, so french amazing. fries are veggies <laughs> bread and veggies too yeah Tell that to the tell that to the aunt who doesn't want that carb or starch that day. So, but the 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 thing that you the reason why you wouldn't want them is just the sheer numbers in your house, they're right? Nice. There's yeah, they're a nuisance. They're a nuisance, pass. and they love to be inside. Mm-hmm. They okay. they uh, readily come inside. In fact, you know, like I mentioned, the um, the state aquarium is loaded indoors. Now the pest management company that they have hired is bringing those under control. The fear is that they're going to break containment before um, they get them under control. Well, that, and then they're also in an, in an environment where they've been limited on what they can actually do as well. Correct. Correct. So that's a um, very insecticide sensitive uh, environment inside the aquarium. You know, they, they can't treat like, we would, and if we had this many ants inside our homes, because of the sensitive animals that also live in, inside the aquarium. I'm making the assumption that they are in the, uh, that like place with the birds, <laughs> like the, it's got all the fancy plants and whatnot. They are, but they're, okay. they're also throughout the building. Okay. And, and supposedly initially one single colony that's now budded into many, many, many others. This is what it looks like. This is what Kelly Liu is a graduate student here in our laboratory and uh, her molecular um, uh, work with these ants from the aquarium and also from Florida seem to indicate that. It's a single introduction that is spread throughout or potentially a second, a second introduction, um, but likely from the same place. So for our listeners and you're listening going, when we talk about when the red imported fire ant was first introduced into to North America. This is about a you are living a discussion. You are hearing a discussion that we didn't do back in the 30s that you are now hearing in 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a podcast. I just really wanted our listeners to grab that 21st century technology. Well, well, and in fact, Janet, it's it's interesting. I don't know if I told you this story or not, but um your listeners may be interested to know this, but we use that very language in the grant that we wrote um, for these ants, the Texas Invasive Ant uh, Research and Management Grant. And um, one of the criteria of the grant is that the insect that you're proposing to work on um, impacts the lives of most Texans. And we said, well, you know, wouldn't you like to be able to go back in time, um, you know, and be having this discussion at the time that fire ants came in uh, through Alabama? I said, basically that you know, that might be what we're looking at here. We might have a uh, an ant that if it breaks containment and spreads throughout the state, we'll look, all look back and wish we had done something about it. And they were very responsive to that. So, so your state being very proactive. Good for Texas. Yeah. It's all about IPM. The things we've learned over the centuries, right? Or decades, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, even if you just go back to the Tawny. Yeah. Crazy ant. I mean... It's understanding that our responses now have to be so fluid Mm -hmm. and it's so hard because we're talking about some things that again, for our audience, while you may see a special that talks about this species or that species, understand 
every species is always just a wee bit different. And when it's a new thing, we're all still sitting there going, well, what the huh? Yeah. One of my, one of my other predictions also is, well, actually, I don't know if this is a prediction, but my hope is that we still continue to see cicada killer wasps because they have been annihilated by the public that thinks that they are the formerly known as Asian giant hornets, currently known as Northern giant hornets, which we do not have in Texas. Uh, I don't even know that they still have it in Washington. Do y'all know how that eradication programs? They do. They do still find them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I had a friend that um, she found one in her house in November and I was like, go catch it, send it to me. And she was just like, oh, I already got rid of it. And I was like, darn it. (laughs) If you find any more, let me know. So they're kind of spreading outside that original area that they were in, in Washington. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly where she lives because she just recently moved back to the States. Okay. Well, I would say that they, I mean, I'd say that we, we would have heard something in the media if they've, if they've done a whole lot of spread in Washington. But one thing I always tell people is they're about as far away from Texas as you could be. Um, They are, you know, they're right. They're on the border with Canada. They're nowhere Mm -hmm. close. And if you end up with them and you're not on a, in a coastal city, then that's like, you know, a one in a bajillion chance you're going to get struck by lightning and hit the lottery at the same time, because there's, how's it going to get there? We're going to know if it naturally spreads its way here. It's not just going to jump from Washington to Texas. And most likely it will be on a, on a port city where it comes in maybe that way. But point being, there is no reason to worry about the Northern giant Hornet or to assume that it's here. It's a, I think it's a fruitless worry, Um, but you will see the cicada killer wasps, they come out when cicadas are abundant because that's their food source and so, or the food source for their babies. So we see them when we hear the cicadas in the trees and they're totally normal to see. And I always worry every summer that we're going to see less and less of them. And I don't know if it's because people are killing them and thinking that's what they are, but um, the numbers seem to be holding steady, but I think time will tell as more and more people whack them down with their tennis rackets and whatever else they hit them with. (laughs) Oh, I was just going to say all things considering, let's just keep in mind, we talk about, you know, temperature and and rainfall, and it's not so much that it's, uh, you know, oh, we get a lot of rain, we can predict, you know, this insect is going to to, um, be prolific during that season, but there's other variables to consider, whether that be, you know, predators, uh, parasitoids, bacteria, viruses, fungi, and we mentioned all those things, and throughout the year, all of those are affected by these different environmental variables to, you know, to consider. So when we say take it with a grain of salt, that, (laughs) that is why. 100%. There's just too many, nature has too many things that, that play into stuff. It's that I, I, you know, we're doing this as the topic for the podcast, but it's my most dreaded media request to talk about what what's going to be big this year or this spring or this summer. And it's like, I don't have a clue. I don't know what rain's going to do. I don't know what temperatures are going to do. I don't know what's happening below the soil with natural enemies and other things. It's just, these are all just guesses that we're, we're trying to give. Um, and I guess to kind of recap what we said, uh, only a few of us were foolish enough to give exact examples. Mm-hmm. I was, the, I was one of them. Um, so I, my prediction was honeybees and that's really more of a hope than anything. Cause if they're getting in your house, it means the feral populations and 
the managed populations are doing really well. Just a bummer if they're in your house because it's going to cost some money to get rid of them. We mentioned um, expecting maybe to see an explosion of crickets um, and only because we haven't seen it in a while. So, uh, you know, things tend to come back. They don't start one time and never come back. So we're thinking maybe crickets. I think everybody kind of agreed that in general, we're going to see some pests of trees based on the, the drought, the continued drought, and then the hot, hot temperatures we had this summer. Um, I think Janet mentioned things may be coming inside that you may not have seen before because foundations may have shifted due to the drought and continued drought. And so making some crackings and some crevices and, and things that allow those pests to squeeze their way in. We also said um, uh, maybe a weird disease might arise because we haven't seen that in a while. So we're almost, we've been lucky in that respect as far as insect vector diseases. So we're kind of do our time. And then the other two, I think that we mentioned were expecting some invasives, white-footed at ants, and then the emerald ash borer. Is that, is that what y'all remember us talking about? Yeah, that sounds great, Molly. All right, well, there you go. Now you know our predictions for 2023 and um, we'll see if we, it'll be interesting as the year goes on to see if we come back to any of these subjects because they're kind of hot and heavy. Um, so stay tuned this year um, as we continue this podcast and we'll catch you next time. For more information on uh, the insects that are out and about and maybe making their way into your home, visit us at extensionentomology.tamu.edu. Thank you.